Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians today. I want to look at Philippians chapter 2. I didn't know that uh, we were having nine marks this weekend, and I certainly didn't know that nine marks was focusing on leadership, but the Lord impressed upon my heart to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. We'll make our way through as much of this passage as we can, as we exegete the passage, understand what the Bible's teaching us, and then we'll make a little bit of application that I hope would be practical for you One of the things I was thinking as I was putting my message together today was if I could go back 25 years ago and sit where you were sitting today, what would I want to know? And some of these things are related to leadership that I want to share with you. Mark Twain wrote years ago, few things are more annoying than a good example. And um, I would say there are a few things that are more powerful than a good example. And, and I thank God in my own life that I had a wonderful example in pastors who led my churches that I attended. I, I had Dr. Gene Mims was my pastor growing up who later went to Lifeway and helped to lead that ministry. And then when I went to Southwestern Seminary, I w- worked at First Baptist Dallas and I got to see Dr. Criswell and Dr. Hawkins lead that ministry as I worked for Dr. Hawkins during those seminary years. Um, all throughout my life and ministry to this very day, I have those that still mentor me in ministry. And I look at them and realize, boy, I am still a work in progress and that um, God wants to grow and encourage me. And he never stops in that journey as long as I am on this earth. And I'm so thankful for those powerful examples that God has given to me. Uh, probably the most powerful example of a person that God ever let me cross paths with was a man by the name of Dr. John Stott. Now, he's a generation gone by, and many of you may or may not know of him, but um, I I was praying one day when I was a seminary student, God, would you cross my path with this man that has written such influential books um, as Dr. Stott has. Basic Christianity was one of those early books that I read in spiritual formation class that just really shaped my heart. I, I remember taking the book of Acts Uh, as a study in seminary, and I I read his Acts commentary, The Spirit, the Church, and the World, and then, of course, The Cross of Christ, just a monumental work. Every Easter, I reread The Cross of Christ, remembering what it is that Christ has done for me upon the cross, and uh, when I finally got to meet John and answered a prayer, someone introduced me to him and began to build a relationship with him, he began to give me some unusual access to him, and it was just one of those answered prayers in life that is just such a sweet thing to have been able to have enjoyed, to learn that he wrote more than 50 books, never took a pound of profit from those books, but he started the Langham Trust in order to give library resources to majority world pastors that he would go and preach in their pulpits in places you and I have never heard of that are nowhere of prominence, but that he recognized the impact of their ministry in those places. Um, I remember the last time that I walked into his flat Francis Whitehead, his famed assistant, answered the door, walked me through the winding hallways 
sat me down in his study, and honestly, it was just surreal to sit again with Dr. Stott in his home to talk election, propitiation, postmodernism, which was the project I was working on for a lecture I was doing somewhere. And I was updating his work in my lecture. He had written uh, the uh, idea that there was a mission that the church had in the modern world. And I was trying to say, what's the mission in the postmodern world? How do we articulate that? And he was helping me to shape and form my arguments. And it was just a very surreal experience. But while there, I noticed something that in his study, there was something that had never been there before. It was a cot, and there was a blanket and a pillow. And uh, I asked Tyler, who now is serving in North America, but I asked Tyler, I said, Tyler, are you expecting guests? What's going on here? And he motioned me to the kitchen where he was putting the cups up from tea time. And he said, well, Dr. Stott had just gotten back from Africa, and he was so moved while there that he came home he sold his bed, he gave the money to missions, and he now slept in a cot where he found himself more restless through the night, praying and interceding for people that he knew were on the majority world, in the majority world context serving as pastors and missionaries. And boy, you talk about a humble man that just exemplified what Christ's ministry and work was about. And, and my heart was moved, and, and, and I hope in some way I was transformed. When I heard that Dr. Stott had died, I made my way to a college church in Chicago where his North American funeral was held. Tim Keller was doing the service. D.A. Carson was there. Billy Graham representatives, just friends from across evangelical Christianity all over North America were gathered there. And I remember sitting there behind the front row just saying, God, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of this fine example. You see, there's nothing really more powerful than a wonderful example. And you live and work and study among wonderful examples as I look at the roster of professors and leadership, their mental capacities, their spiritual experiences, their heart for missions, their exegetical understanding. What, what a treasure you have. And I hope today you, you really understand the treasure that you have. Now, I thank God for all of those examples in my life, but there's a theme that runs across all of their lives, certainly in Dr. Stott. It was this idea that, that he had a heart, a heart for God, a heart for people, a heart for missions. I, I understood that, that he was a man of unbelievable discipline. He had habits that really challenged me, study habits, personal discipline habits, sacrificial habits. And certainly, if there was anyone that was honorable, it was Dr. Stott. And I've seen that honorable nature in so many of the other leaders that I have had the privilege of interacting with over the years, just stalwarts in the Christian faith. And I think as we turn to Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul had these kinds of things in mind. He, he certainly had spiritual leadership in mind. He describes for us uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus and in some ways, he reveals his own heart by what he talks about that he sees in these young men and that he prioritizes for their ministry as he recognized he was sitting in a prison cell and could not go and lead these churches and minister to these people. And so what he was doing was raising up leaders and sending them out and equipping them with what we have today as the Word of God and saying, here are the priorities, here's the plans. These are the things that God wants you to do as you are on mission for him. And I would say to you that these words are incredibly relevant for us today because there is a desperate need for 
leadership. It was Howard Hendricks at DTS that said to us often when we would go over and hear him preach at Dallas Theological Seminary that the greatest crisis in the world today is a crisis of leadership. And the greatest crisis of leadership is a crisis of character. But Christ sends forth his leaders filled with Christ-like priorities and character out into the world to lead with clarity and conviction. And listen, the world needs leaders who are convicted and filled with Christ-likeness. The church desperately needs leaders who have a clear direction, who have God's vision who can organize and lead people to be on mission for God. And certainly the communities that many of you serve, like the community that I serve in, there is just such great challenge in front of us where we need Christian leaders to step out of the context of the church and into the context of society and solve the problems of society with the answers that God gives us in his word. And then of course, very close to home for all of us are our families. The Bible teaches us that we are to lead our families well. For you husbands and fathers to have the courage and conviction to lead, for mothers to lead with love and truth. Now, hopefully you're already sitting there asking yourself then, what is a Christian leader? What exactly does that look like? And I'll propose one definition and you certainly will have opportunity to explore this throughout the weekend with Nine Marks being here. But I would say to you that a Christian leader is someone who is God called and God equipped. Someone who is a servant who uses their natural gifts and their spiritual gifts to move people onto God's agenda, to move people in a God-given direction. And this is brought out beginning in verse 19 of chapter two. Notice what the Bible says. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. Now notice he shifts from Timothy to Epaphroditus. Notice what he says about him in verse 25. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not only him, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow." Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. And notice how he says to receive this servant. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that which was deficient in your service to me. Now, what we've just read is a New Testament leadership ladder. We have three men serving at three different levels on the early church's leadership ladder. You have the Apostle Paul, who was a kingdom leader, sitting in jail, writing the scriptures. You have Timothy, who was the understudy, the pastor elder. You have Epaphroditus, the lay leader. 
And of course, it's so easy in the context of the story of Philippians to skip right over this passage of Scripture for one of my favorite verses is in uh, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, the incarnation of Christ, the glory of the gospel, what God has done to accomplish salvation through the death, the burial, the resurrection, exaltation of Jesus Christ, exactly the message Dr. Aiken preached on the last time he was at Calvary this summer. And then the personal appeal of Philippians chapter 3 I remember sitting in a seminary chapel service at Southwestern and hearing Philippians 3 preach for the first time. And when I heard that Paul's longing was to know Christ, it resonated in my heart. For that was the biblical definition of what I was pursuing in my own personal journey. But in between these two mountaintops, Paul does not descend off the mountaintop. He simply says, if Christ is going to be exalted as the glorious God who has descended to die on the cross and rise again, and people are going to come to know Christ, here's what it's going to take. It's going to take spiritual leaders with passion and purpose to get behind the call of God to do the ministry that God has called them to. And Paul outlines his thoughts around the heart, the habits, and the honor of a spiritual leader. Now look with me in verse 19. There's so much here, I can't do justice to it all. For in every verse, there are monumental lessons on display, if you will, but spend time in this passage of Scripture. But look at the heart of a spiritual leader in verses 19 through 24. He describes, Paul describes four burdens on the heart of a spiritual leader. Number one, they're concerned for others. Spiritual leaders are concerned for others. In verse 19, Paul reveals his plan to send Timothy back to Philippi because of his concern for them. He says, I hope that Timothy is able to encourage you. But notice it's not Timothy that he has his hope in. He has his hope in the Lord for God was working through Timothy's life that he was a man of God. And just like Paul had sent Timothy to Corinth and just like he had sent Timothy to Thessalonica, now he's sending Timothy to give the hope of God to the people of God in that church. And he says in verse 19, the reason he wants to do this is he wants them to be encouraged. Now that's an unusual word used only here in the New Testament. It's the only time in the New Testament that word is used. It's use in... Greek days, when the Greek language was commonly used, was on Hellenistic gravestones. It's the idea of, may it be well with your soul. It was the engraving on the Hellenistic tombstones. May it be well with your soul. And and Paul knew that this was the concern that Timothy had for those that he was preaching to and encouraging. He he knew that, that he had a kindred spirit. This was his concern. And in verse 20, he says, no one else is, is like this, of kindred spirit. No one else is same-souled like I am. I've trained Timothy. He's well-trained. I've equipped Timothy. He's well-equipped. He is a young spiritual leader. He has been tested in Lystra. He has been battle-hardened in Corinth. And now... Paul says, this is my true child in the faith, and he sends Timothy because he was, notice the words, genuinely concerned for their soul. The word genuinely is used positively here in the Bible. Most of the time it's used negatively. Jesus uses it negatively when he says, be anxious for nothing, when he tells us to not worry about tomorrow. But Paul uses it here positively to indicate 
an orientation towards others, that he is concerned about the souls of others. He, he is sending Timothy back to check on the spiritual condition of the people and to encourage them spiritually. And he says, Timothy isn't gonna be worried about himself, he's gonna be worried about others. Now listen, students, in our church culture today, unfortunately, there is a celebrity-driven culture that causes many to fall into a cult following of many Christian leaders. And those Christian leaders are in it for fame, for their own glory, for their own advancement. But faithful spiritual leaders do not lead out of vain conceit or selfish ambition. Faithful spiritual leaders understand that leadership is not about who they are but about how God desires to work through them in the lives of other people. And, and the leader must be willing to lead at great cost to themselves and for the benefit of others. You see, leadership is not about privileges and opportunities. It is about responsibility and faithfulness to the call of God in your life. And, and Paul's very life would be the illustration of this when he says it's his daily concern for the church that grinds against him. He says, shipwreck me, beat me, stone me, leave me for dead, whip me. But here's my great concern. My great concern is for the church and listen faithful spiritual leaders share that concern for others notice what verse 21 says for there is a second burden on the heart of a spiritual leader spiritual leaders safeguard the interest of Jesus Christ seeking after the interest of Jesus Christ verse 21 says zeteo is the word we know it from Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. But here the Bible says that, that Timothy is a man that is seeking first the interest of Jesus Christ. Paul himself taught Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.14 to guard the treasure that has been entrusted to him. Guard the treasure, for this is the Christ we preach. We, we don't preach Christ like was said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, out of envy or out of strife. No, no, that's not the motivation. That's not the burden on the heart of a spiritual leader. No, we seek Christ. We seek his glory. We seek his interest. And yet again today, you would have to say that there are people in their ministries who seek glory for themselves. They place their brand development alongside and perhaps even at times above God's. And you say, well, I commit today to never do so. But young friends, let me tell you that the flesh is a deceitful foe and that selfish motives can easily worm their way into our own life and leadership. And selfish ambition and vain conceit, in a verse that God spoke to me very powerfully in those early days of my ministry, these things do cause confusion and disorder and dis distortion, like James 3 says. You see, Paul says in no place where these Preachers in Philippi, heretical, nor were they apostate. 
but what they had become was selfish, not spiritual. And the leader must, must guard their heart. Look at verse 22. There's a third burden on the heart of a spiritual leader. A spiritual leader seeks to be reliable, proven worth, examined, tested, and the character is proven to be true. You see, spiritual leaders are examined and proven. It was a few years earlier in Paul's ministry that he had lost a young man named John Mark who had, having set his hand to the plow, turned back. And obviously here, Paul was describing Timothy as someone different. For he had served in the toughest of places. He, he had served in the worldly secular center of Corinth, and he was called by Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 17, a faithful minister. You, you see, timid Timothy had been tested and tried, and he was found to be true. And you will be tested. You will be tested in ministry, and you will have to in those moments, say, he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. In those moments, say, God, I am going to be loyal and faithful to your calling. And you will have to overcome disappointments. And you will have to face discouragement. And you will have to remain resilient. And you'll have to deal with church bullies. And yet, keep the love of God on the throne of your heart as you do so. You'll have to face all kinds of distractions. And yet, remain incredibly focused upon what God has called you to in the ministry of the local church or of global missions. And in those moments, it will be one of the most soul-searching, one of the most revealing experiences that you ever have in your spiritual journey. Your heart, your motives, your priorities, your struggles, your issues, your weaknesses, your hidden sins will all show themselves in the church that you serve. And if they're not manifest in the church, they will certainly be manifest at your home where your children and your spouse see you on display there. You see, leading imperfect people onto the mission of God against the forces of this dark world will reveal your character and your competencies just as much as they will also reveal your struggles and your weaknesses. And you will, in those moments, either come face to face with your weaknesses, your needs to grow, and you will be willing to humbly grow and mature, or the people you are trying to lead will talk about you behind your back while your weaknesses hold you back, and you will wonder why. Paul's developing the burdens of a spiritual leader, concern for others, guarding the ministry entrusted to them, reliability. Here's the fourth, verse 22 also, spiritual leaders advance the gospel. For the furtherance of the gospel, Paul says, Paul was sending Timothy because he was a key leader in the strategic advancement of the gospel, but he wasn't sending him immediately because Paul needed him where he was, probably in Rome where Paul was in prison. He needed him there for strategic purposes. You see, Paul was interested in the church in Philippi, but what he was most interested in was the work of God's advance in the kingdom of God. Paul himself hoped to come, but until then he was going to send Epaphroditus, then send Timothy, then go himself because his goal was not joy and comfort and ease and encouragement. His first priority was the advancement of the gospel. What is going to advance the kingdom of God in the way that God has designed it to advance? So he sends Timothy in due time, his spiritual son, verse 22 says, 
to advance the gospel, concern for others, safeguarding the gospel, reliability, the advance of the gospel. Here, students, are the burdens on the heart of a spiritual leader. Now, Paul shifts his focus next. He shifts his focus from Timothy to Epaphroditus. He comes to verse 25, and he begins to talk about Epaphroditus. And he talks about the habits that are a part of the makeup and the leadership practice of this lay leader within the church. He describes this in verse 25 as he calls him a brother, a fellow worker, a soldier, a messenger, and a minister to my need. So here this lay leader described in five words, all in verse 25, in a very condensed way, describes for us these habits of a spiritual leader. Notice each one of these. My brother, what's he saying? What is the character trait of a brother? Well, family loyalty is usually the highest trait. He's saying that spiritual leaders are loyal. Adelphon is the word, it's a relationship word. He's saying we're in the same spiritual family. I have a living example of this in front of me in my home. I have a 16-year-old daughter who's driving for the first time. I have a son who's 12 who loves to play with a six-year-old brother. A six-year-old brother one day will be much larger than my older son, my middle son, will be when they're full grown. But right now, the 12-year-old can manhandle pretty regularly um, my youngest son. And one of my great joys, one of my wife's great consternation is to watch the two boys on the trampoline in the backyard mimicking WWF wrestling moves as they body slam and headlock one another. And I think the thing that I broke up last was, but Daddy, John had me in a headlock and all I could do was bite him and kick him, you know, Daddy, in that special place. And, and I said, yes, son, I, I understand. And, and I had to deal with brothers and discipline them. But can I tell you, when the neighborhood bully comes around, what happens to those two brothers? The bully picks on one of those boys, and the other will fight to the death to rescue his brother. You talk about a love and a loyalty. There is an unbreakable loyalty there. And Paul's saying this young leader in the church is loyal like few others. He has toiled beside me. He has worked in the fields and he's worked with a love and he's worked with a faithfulness. And a spiritual leader has to know how to be loyal in that kind of way for we do play on the team. It's called the family of God. But there are some people in God's family who haven't learned yet how to play well with others. But one of the things that's most important that God seems to uniquely bless in the plurality of leadership that he puts on display in the church is a good team chemistry where there is interdependence upon one another and you strive together towards similar goals. Look at the next word. He's my fellow worker. I would circle the worker part of that. He emphasizes again the partnership that he has with this man, but he is a worker. The word he uses is that 
common laborer who is working with the Lord, who, who's out in the Lord's harvest field. They're working together. They don't give up. They don't give in. They, they, they labor beside one another. They, they don't take credit and give blame. They honor those who are working beside them in the church. And I want you to take special note that the Bible says that ministry is work. Some people sit back and let ministry come to them and they are passive in the work of the ministry. Others go out and seek the ministry. They make the most of every opportunity that God gives them. They are out in the community and they labor tirelessly working, working long, working faithfully. And this is what Paul commends Epaphroditus for. Notice the next phrase. Spiritual leaders are courageous. They're a soldier. What's the primary characteristic of a soldier? They're courageous. It took courage for Epaphroditus to walk into that Roman prison. It took courage for him to identify with the Apostle Paul. It took courage for him to enter into the arena. And it will take courage for you to serve faithfully in the places where the Lord sends you. You see, a spiritual leader's day will be filled with complexity and diversity and conflict and disappointment and competition and stress and management and communication and leadership and risk and all kinds of things that will come at you in that moment. And you must not cower in those moments in fear. You must hear the clarion call of God and have conviction in your heart to say this is the post upon which the Lord has stationed me and I will be faithful there. Is it any wonder that Moses, maybe the greatest servant leader in the Old Testament, is calling out to Joshua in the moment he passes the mantle of leadership to him and he says be strong and courageous and look carefully at how many times he says be strong and be courageous. Notice what he says next, your messenger it's the word apostle, the one who carries a message. Epaphroditus had a special relationship to his home church. They asked him to be the messenger. And spiritual leaders are always messengers for we carry good news. We are simply messengers. And the good news must be quick upon our lips as we communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. But we also as leaders communicate regularly with others, giving direction and organization to the ministry of the church. And the church must be able to do that from its leadership. They must be able to communicate clearly with their members. It builds trust like few other things ever do. Notice the final word. Spiritual leaders care. It's the word we get liturgical out of. He's the minister, the one who cares that meets spiritual needs. He was distressed about the people while he was dying himself in Rome, but his concern was on others. Is that not the heart of Jesus Christ himself? He cared for us. I sat down with a well-known pastor over a decade ago in a restaurant Spent two hours with him hearing his frustrations about the church that he led. I shared with him the burdens of my heart and here's what he said to me. He said, Rob, you have to get to a place where you just don't care anymore. The saddest words I've ever heard out of a pastor's mouth. You see, if you don't care, go sell grave plots. But when you care, you care for God's message, you care for God's name, you care for God's ministry, you care for God's people, 
There is no task like the task God calls us to as he calls us into places of spiritual leadership in the world. It is the single greatest privilege that you could possibly ever have to care for the body of Jesus Christ. And this is the privilege that we have when we preach the gospel and take up the mantle of spiritual leadership. So we must be loyal and hardworking and courageous. We must communicate and we must care. And God is with those who do. Now, I'll leave you to yourself to study verses 28 through 30. He speaks of the honor of the spiritual leader. He says, receive the spiritual leader, respect the spiritual leader, and risk with the spiritual leader. What I want to do as I close is simply give you a few practical tools and resources. As I leave you this morning, I, I want to say three things to you. Number one... Spiritual leadership is built on trust. I'm gonna ask them to put a slide above that you can look at that I think in some ways unpacks how trust is developed for a spiritual leader. This is something that I use with my staff and with churches that I work with as we're helping spiritual leadership to gain the buy-in of pastors who are seeking to serve faithfully. It comes down to two things, trust is built on the back of character and competence. Under the category of character, you have to recognize the heart's intent and the integrity of the person. Under intent, are you caring? Are you humble? Are you open? When it comes to integrity, are you honest? Are you fair? Are you authentic? But you understand as you deal with the character side of things, you can't miss the competence side of things. Under competence, there's this issue of capability and results. Capability, do you have the skills and the knowledge, the experience? And friends, that is a privilege that you have in this very day to grow in. But also results. Jesus calls us to be faithful stewards of what he entrusts to us. What about your reputation and the reputation you give others about the God you serve? Credibility and even your performance of your duties. Are, are you the faithful servant who discharges your duties in a way that pleases your commanding officer? Trust will lie at the heart of living out the burdens, the calling, and establishing the habits in ministry that will determine whether you're an honorable leader or not. So much will rest upon the issue of trust. The second thing that I wanna leave you with today is this, that spiritual leadership is developed one level at a time. There's a leadership ladder that we use at our church that I teach to others, that I share with others, that we'll put up on the screen in front of you. And it talks about how you lead yourself that's the first level of leadership. How you lead others, how you lead teams, how you lead divisions, how you lead the church, and how you lead in the kingdom. There are a lot of people that wanna jump right to the top of that list. They never learn to lead themselves. They never learn to lead others but they wanna become a kingdom leader or a church leader in a moment. 
But can I assure you there are no shortcuts in leadership development. There's no shortcut in competency or in character. This is one of those places where you get to touch every base, and if you don't, at some point, you'll be called out. You have to master all the skills. You have to learn all the lessons, because if you don't, you'll frustrate yourself, and you'll frustrate others around you, and you'll struggle personally to to fulfill the duties that God has given to you. You know, the reality is this. Most pastors spend more time in a week exegeting scriptures for a sermon they preach, then they'll spend time in a year thinking about the leadership that they give to a church. And so the church remains where it is because a pastor hasn't spent time with God determining where it needs to go, where they need to grow, how they need to lead. Your president has written about this kind of leadership in a Bible dictionary, the Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. He's written an article on being an overseer. And I put a word cloud together for you that kind of takes that word overseer at the center and then spreads around it the various roles that as an overseer you will be responsible for if you lead in a local church. The idea, of course, comes to us from Peter. Peter in 1 Peter 5 Chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, talks to us about being an elder, a wise teacher. He talks to us about being a shepherd, a caring pastor. And then he talks to us about being an overseer, that administrator, that leader, that communicator, that vision caster, that organizer, the one who is the steward, proven faithful with what God has entrusted to him. And it is right that we consider the role of the overseer, and it is right for a seminary to establish a leadership part of their school to say, hey, we want to produce spiritual leaders because much of the effectiveness of your ministry will land at the very feet of your leadership that you give in the ministries that you undertake. Here's the final thing that I'll share with you today. That spiritual leadership requires a coherent plan for progress. You see, the people you will lead, the people you will speak to, the people you will teach, the people you pastor, looking for some handlebars to hang on to the things you're giving them as you try to give direction to the church. And over the years of pastoring three churches, I've discovered a little bit of a a process. It goes like this. It begins with discovering. There's a slide that goes with this. Discovering. You always start with discovering, listening, listening, looking, learning. Looking deeply and carefully into the realities of the ministry. What is God saying? How is God at work? Beyond that, the convergence, where does God want the ministry to be based? And usually it's at the convergence of a leader's passion, a church's calling, and a community's need. And there is a sweet space of ministry that God lets us serve from. The pyramid says you simply frame up what you're doing and where you're going. Where are we going? Why are we going there? How are we going to get there? What does it look like when we get there? These are questions the leader, the the pastor especially and only can answer. The path, the key question is this, will you have the Great Commission at the heart of it? You better, coming out of this seminary, you better have evangelism and discipleship at the heart of it, and that is the discipleship and evangelism pathway that has to be your heartbeat as you lead people. The ladder, you've seen it, the leadership ladder, And finally, the launch to use all the tools that God has given you through all of your experiences to lead.
There's a man that I'm going to show you a picture of. His name's Peter Olanapo. He's the general secretary of the Kenyan Baptist Convention. He's a friend of this seminary. Dr. Ewart knows him well. He was visiting with me the last time he was in the United States. It, it was really fun because um, he shared with me um, and my son's fifth grade uh, school classroom how to kill a lion. Now, now, how many of you all have killed a lion before? Okay, I don't see any hands in the room. So Peter was telling us that he had killed two lions before, and here's how you kill a lion. You should have seen these fifth grade boys in this classroom listening to this man, a big 6'3", Maasai tribe. It's how you wear your sword across your chest. You, you get a club in your hand and you, you put it under the lion's throat. You, you put a sword and a knife in your other hand and, and, and you put it on the lion's nose. I said, it sounds to me a little bit like deacon's meeting. <laughs> I got two of my deacons here and they're wonderful people. And he said, in that moment, you must stand firm. You must have courage in your heart and you must rely upon all of the training that you have. You see, there's a roaring lion out there that's seeking to destroy, and God is calling you to be a spiritual leader who stands up and gives direction and follows the call of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There are lions to be slain, but listen, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for these challenges today from Paul's very pen as he was leading and training young men in the ministry. What a privilege it is, Lord, to be called to this thing called ministry. And today we pray as we recommit ourselves to this calling of Christian leadership, to the character of Christ-likeness, to the care of your people and to the courage that you want to put in our heart to follow hard after you. God, help each one of us to be faithful spiritual leaders. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.